This is the Rower's Choice Podcast. Sordo with the Rower's Choice Podcast, and I have John Titus of Pocock Racing Shells out in Seattle, Washington. I met him in 2011 for a very quick tour around his facility, and since then, uh, he's become a mentor of mine. We talk on a weekly basis, we work together on a number of ideas, and we always uh, find time to talk about the love and hate of the industry. And today you're going to learn a little bit about John, his rowing background, um, how things transitioned from the Pocock family to the Titus family, and then what he thinks and where he thinks the industry is headed uh, for the future. So John, welcome Thank you. to the podcast. Uh, you are the first manufacturer interview that I had outside of what I currently do. So, you know, people hear Pocock. Mm-hmm. And they have, I think most people don't know, it's owned by the Titus family. So give me a quick or give the audience a quick background on your rowing experiences and what happened in those 1980s when your dad took over uh, okay. the ownership of Pocock. Uh, my dad was uh, really good friends, family friends with the Pococks, um, was coached by George and then Stan uh, my dad was a pretty good scholar, good rower as well. Well, he was the guy in that video, right? That, yep, and symphony I, and of motion. What's the, the, the thing you told me, and I still laugh at this, he says, we see your dad's ass crack coming down the water, right? Like what, no, what, that, what, was, <laughs> that was actually uh, Craig Amerkanian from Stanford who said uh, that, that uh, something to the effect of that butt crack launched a thousand rowing careers <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, that uh, yeah, symphony of motion, that is a, that's a movie with my dad in it. Yeah. Um, and if you watch the movie, I mean, he was a pretty scholar. He was a really good scholar. Um, uh, I believe at one point my dad was the only person to win a medal back at the Pan Ams, which was, you know, the world championships previously. Yep. Um, he was the only person to win a gold medal in the eight and a medal and get silver in the single in the same regatta. Wow. Um, Is that even allowed today? Like double rowing like that? I don't know. I, I don't know. Wow. Um, you know, a guy like Coven had won. You know, and, and subsequent regattas, he's won medals, sure. but not in the same one. Wow, okay. Um, so anyway, um, my dad was, we were living in Boston, and I've got a lot of memories of my dad coaching uh, guys like John Bigelow on the Charles with Harry. And so I have memories, vivid memories, of growing up in the back of those old Harvard runabout launches with this really rough wool blanket. You're just su- like five years old, yeah. six years old? Yeah, wow. with like the Sunday paper, reading the comics. <laughs> Well, my dad and Harry coached guys like John. And um, and what year was this? Well, that would have been, uh, yeah, early 80s. Wow, okay. Yeah, early 80s. So um, uh, we're living in Boston. My dad was a teacher and then a contractor, general contractor. And uh, my grandparents lived out in Seattle. Uh, we came out to visit one year. Uh, and my dad had dinner with Stan Pocock, and Stan had mentioned how none of his family was interested in taking over or having much interest in the business. Yeah, that's a common theme, you know, in our industry. I, apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, uh, they'd had a couple of beers. My dad said, hey, I'm going to come back someday, and I'm going to buy this thing from you. You know, I refused to let the name, you know, go off wow. into the sunset. And so, uh, yeah, that was it. And then, um, so that was mid-'80s, uh, 85, actually. We moved out to Seattle, and uh, my dad uh, yeah, bought the business from Stan. Holy cow. Yep. So at that point, you're 10, 11, 12, something like that? 
1985, I was 11, yes. Okay, so I was born in 1985, right. so now I got, got that. So Young now buck. you know how old you are. Right. So then, you, I mean, you rode, right? I mean, you rode for oh, Syracuse, I, I know that. but Yeah, I rode in college. Um, it was, it's interesting. My dad knew, uh, well, leading up to college rowing, um, uh, I ran and swam in high school. Okay. Uh, I was a pretty good runner and, and swimmer too, but um, my dad really thought that if you learned how to train, you didn't have to row in high school necessarily to be good in college. If you learned how to train and race, which there's there's the great equalizer is the pool, man. I mean, if you can race well in a swimming pool yeah. and What train, was your distance? Uh, I was an IMer, and then um, I was a half miler and track and a miler. And I ran a 419 mile in high school. 419 mile? Yeah, and a 154, 800. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. 419. I don't think anybody knows that. that I guarantee that. you nobody who looks at me now says that dude, <laughs> that dude went 419. I guarantee you. Like, like ostrich that. legs. I mean, yeah. you must have been a bean pole at that point. Yeah. And I, yeah, I really wanted to run. I liked running. I didn't really want to train. I knew the volume. How ironic. I mean, I knew the volume in college would be so much different than the volume I did in high school mm. in track. And so I wasn't interested in that. And then I think about the volume I did in college for rowing, and I see what people are doing now. And <laughs> so, so Syracuse. Yep, this so I is... ended up, yeah, I ended up going to Syracuse, rowed there, and I went there because, uh, you know, my dad knew these coaches on a much different level than most um, kids' fathers would know. There, they were probably buying the product, right? I mean, they were buying Pocock boats, right? Well, no, they weren't actually. No, they weren't. They just, my dad knew. Actually, my dad, um, at, I went to Syracuse, rowed for Bill and Paul Sanford. Um, my dad knew Bill Sanford was a great guy, and he is. He was like a second father to me, is like a second father to me. And he met really Bill through his daughter, through Bill's daughter, Chris Sanford, who at the time ran U.S. rowing in Indianapolis. And she was, uh, I don't think she ever lost a race at Washington. She wow. was in the heyday of Washington women's rowing in the 80s. Who ended up then being a coach at, at Syracuse while I was there as well, but uh, became good friends with Chris over mm -hmm. the years. Um, but yeah, rode at Syracuse relatively. Uh, uh, that was. That was the, the years I was at Syracuse were the years of Gladstone's Brown Cruise that um, everybody at Sprint's like start, starter would say go. And then at 10 strokes, those boats would be clear. And those are the boats with Zeno and Christian Saws and Porter Collins and Vuk Dijinic and um, good crews. So man. you just knew going in that you just didn't stand a chance. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. Did you make it to the grand final at the no. Uh, IRA? No. Were you in the varsity eight during that period of time? Yeah, I rode in the varsity. Uh, um, I rode in the varsity my sophomore, junior, and senior. Years. I mean, you're you're six five, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was we were we were good. I mean, we had we had good guys, um, but never really. I mean, listen, it's competitive now. It was competitive back then, you know. And what so, boats were you rowing at the time? Best bowlies. Best bowlies. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that makes sense. Baby blue best bowlies. Baby blue best bowlies. And we never understood why Bill wanted baby blue ones when. The Syracuse blue was specifically a navy blue, wow. and we had these baby blue Vespolis, and we, at some point, we always discussed how we feel like if we roll up in this thing, we've already lost, man. We're this baby blue boat. So your, your, your dad never utilized his relationship with you and your time at, at Syracuse to try to sell boats to Syracuse? Uh, he did. It was, um, we had a boat there for a while. Um, it was interesting, because Cornell was buying boats at the time, and... Uh, Syracuse has always had a relationship with Cornell, the right down the road. Yeah, and so Cornell was a was a Pocock customer, um, and um, Bill was interested. But you know, like we we hear it. I mean, a lot of people in the industry can attest to this. You you hear a lot about like, hey, I've got a boathouse full of these parts. 
um, back then there wasn't any internet ordering. You, know, you weren't getting stuff shipped sure. overnight unless you could get a hold of somebody. So um, service really was a big thing. And um, I mean, it, it just made sense. If you're in New York, you should, you should buy boats from that company. Yeah, so okay. We had a demo. We had a boat. Um, we had a Pocock E8 that at the time was our you know, state-of-the-art boat. Um, and I think we had it for a year. Um, and guys liked it. We liked it a lot. We used it all fall. And, um, but, no. So graduated in what, 97? 96. 96. Yep. What happens next? Um, uh, I was pretty sure I didn't really want to row. I had gone to pre-elite camp the summer previous. Um, Who was the coach there? It was, uh, uh, well, Mike Tatey was the coach. We actually, there was, uh, there's good stories about that too. You are going to edit this thing, right? I think so. Yeah. CJ, you're going to edit this? <laughs> okay. Uh, Okay, so um, you can look it up. In 1995, there was, like, no joke, like this monster heat wave through the Mid-Atlantic. And this is back when U.S. rowing really didn't know, <laughs> I mean, didn't have their act together. I don't know if they, <laughs> they do now. But back then, with these camps, it was, um, uh, was kind of like, hey, you get invited, you made the cut, you, your erg was good enough, we'll take you. And so we started this camp out, I'll never forget it. We started this camp in Philly, rowing out of Penn A.C., and Justin Moore was the sure. currently the freshman coach. He would he had been the freshman coach at Yale, and he was coaching the pre league camp. And we were all living in a Gerard Avenue row house, like oh. row home, whatever you call them. Yeah. And um, and then we uh, moved to uh, Princeton, and there wasn't really any housing. Uh, there was no sick and office back then, or at least they were going to let us live with them. Yeah. And so uh, my whole camp, literally, we had twenty five guys sleeping on the floor in the tank at Princeton. And I remember nice. vividly, it was like it was like 120 at night, okay, <laughs> and muggy. And we went out to whatever the equivalent of a Walmart was, and we, we didn't have any money either, right? So yeah. we bought, we just said, <laughs> we're just buying fans, man. And we bought, <laughs> we probably bought 20 uh, box fans and put them in a ring around us. And we just had this air blowing over us just trying to get some sleep. Holy yeah. cow. Um, that was, yeah, it was fun times, but that was... That was my real only glimpse of kind of team training afterwards. Well, that was the start of that big three-year span of the best U.S. rowing ever, right? Yeah, and that was, uh, uh, we're coming off of, it was an interesting time. It was coming off of a, of a Spracklin-led men's team that um, in 96 had, you know, become, had, had got, I think they got fifth at the Olympics, and they were, they were I think they were um, planning on placing a little higher than that. And so Mike left. And then Mike Tatey took over in 90, that was summer, so my camp was summer of 95, so I think summer, basically after the Olympics in 96, Mike took over. And yeah, that 90, 97, 98, 99 run of Mike's was as impressive as it gets. And sure. Then, you all know the story about the 2000 Olympics, but yeah, um, yeah, that was, uh, I mean, uh, rowing, you know, there's a lot of people that have rowed for Mike Tatey, but uh, for the month and a half I rode with Mike, I mean, it was, it was great fun. So I know your dad's sick, John, but um, if I if I if I am, I think I'm accurate. So I don't think that I'm I'm stepping out of line here when I say that I believe that in the '80s your dad was the first boat builder that exchanged hands from one company to the next, the ownership to the next, right? Like you look back at every other boat manufacturer out there, pre like post your father, right? Like pre that era, there was no other boat builder that exchanged hands, especially on the scale of what Pocock was. You know, George Pocock, Stan, 
I can't think of any other family or moments that had happened with manufacturers. And I, and I wanted to ask, in that period, in that transition, right, from George Stan to him, what were the hardest things that he had to deal with in those first five, say, ten years? Everyone knows who George Pocock is. Everyone, right. I think, Stan, right? So can you think back? I mean, you were uh, every bit of like 11, right, or 10. Or what was well, going on? Uh, well, first off, there was an inordinate amount of just general trust between my dad and the Pocock family. I mean, like I said, longtime family friends. Um, when my dad was a kid, he would work in the shop in the summer, okay, in the old Pocock shop. Um, and he that's how he found rowing was by finding the shop first. Okay. Um, and then he rowed at uh, Lakeside High School here in Seattle. Um, and then when I was, I mean, my middle name is Pocock. I'm is John, it actually? Yeah, I'm John Pocock Titus, but it's not, there's no other relation other than uh, my dad really wanted to name me after his, you know, wanted to name his firstborn after somebody who he thought was pretty cool. Oh my God. I actually had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your legal middle name is yeah, Pocock. John, John P. Titus. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And so, um, you know, to do something like that, I mean, clearly there's a, uh, a major amount of respect. And so um, a lot of my dad's intention when he when he um, took over the company was to not let um, the name just be forgotten and gone by the wayside. So he worked really hard at that. And this was at a time, this was at a time when um, yeah there was already a, a foreign overseas influence. There was a lot of boats getting built and brought into the country um, from Germany, um, from England. Yep. And so, um, you know, the Pocock boats at that time, um, and this is not so much in the mid-80s, but definitely in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, there was a time when the, when the Pocock boats were perceived as being not exactly as state-of-the-art as they had been at one point. Um, uh, and that's really interesting because Stan Pocock, um, who was actually an engineer, he was the only one of the bunch that was an engineer. He was an engineer uh, and graduated from Washington. Um, so he worked in the shop. Engineering degree, worked at the shop, and also coached the UW freshman. Um, and he's the one that, you know, the story goes that, like, whenever George went away for the summer to be the boatman for the national team, then that's when Stan would pull out all the composites and play with composites while George was gone. Uh. And Stan made the first composite oar. Um, those early Pocock boats had glass hulls with wood frames. They were essentially built, they were built just like wooden boats were, but the hulls were fiberglass or Kevlar and not wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so the boats really took a big turn when they became, you know, truly monocoque boats and they weren't just models of wooden boats made out of composite materials. But, um, those early days, uh, my dad had a, you know, it was, it was not all rosy as I recall, but, um, like I said, a, a tremendous amount of respect for Stan. George had already passed away. George died in 1976. So Stan was running the company. Um, and, um, my dad really enjoyed, I believe, working side by side with Stan because he had to learn the business. It really kind of became my dad's business, I think, when we moved the shop uh, up to Everett the first time we've been in Which Everett. Which when? Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but um, 1989, maybe. So so in, in the, what, uh, 35 years that he's been an owner of, of uh, Pocock, you've now taken over. What would you say, what would he say his biggest accomplishment was in the 35 years at, uh, at Pocock? <clears throat> uh, well, what he would say, I think he'd probably say he's had a good time working with his kids. My, my sister, who's also a co-owner with me, um, she worked here for um, a couple different spells for um, um, and did real work here. I mean, um, I think he's, 
I think he's appreciated the opportunity he's given to his family. Um, we've had numerous other siblings of mine um, come through. Their spouses have worked here. Um, so I think, um, I believe just having a place where the family can work together, you know, make something, learn, you know, these are in some cases important jobs here at the shop or even in some cases pretty menial, but um, nonetheless, you know, the family working together has always been really fun. I've enjoyed that time. I think he would say that's his biggest thing. Uh, I, I would say is his boat designs. I think he's, I think he understands more about how rowing shells go through the water than anybody else around. And I think that's because of his intuition and being uh, and understanding really well how, how the boats have to go through the water because he did it. Yeah. So he, I mean, he rode at a high level. So he's, he's sort of mimicking what the Pocock family was doing prior to him. Right. I mean, it was a very family centric <clears throat> yep. environment. Yep. And George, you know, George had, you know, George and his brother founded the company back, you know, 1911 up in Vancouver. And then, um, his brother Dick ended up becoming the boatman at Yale, and this is all chronicled in Boys in the Boat. Um, how much time does he now spend within the walls here at, at, at Pocock? Like, how is he still? Is he contributing to the day to day or anything at the company? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, physically here, uh, a couple days a week, uh, usually later in the week. Um, otherwise, they've got a spot out on the beach they like to stay. And so he'll come in, uh, but he works a lot. Um, I don't think he, I, mean, I know he's got a lot of projects that aren't associated with the business he'd like to get going on, but I think he really likes, um, he likes making the stuff here. So we're, we're designing, you know, he's always kind of drawing and designing new parts. I mean, uh, we're making a new foot stretcher right now. Um, we're going to make a new wing for the X8 here coming up. And these are all parts that he's um, intimately, intimately involved with me with. Selfishly, I mean, I, um, I really enjoy having him around, you know, um, like I said, I've, um, if I haven't seen him every day, I've talked to him at least once a day for, uh, well, since 1998. Yeah. And so I think that's a pretty rare relationship for any father and son. I don't know how many times, uh, there's some, whether it's a, you know, it's not even an issue or it's just, you know, something comes up with either an employee or a supplier or a customer. Um, and I'll look over at him and he, he's heard the complaint or he's heard of the issue and I'll just look at him for some sort of, you know, give me a sign. Tell me what you think. And he'll look at me and he'll, and only a smile that he, those of you that know my dad uh, can almost picture it. He'll smile and it's kind of a smile smirk. And he'll look at me and he'll say, not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Fifteen years, you guys have launched. No, in eighteen years, no, fifteen years, you've launched two hull design changes, right? The ninety-eight mold, and then what? The 2016, 17? Uh, what's yeah? I mean, the um, we learned a lot from making the V8s, and all three size V8s are actually different shape hulls. Uh, we learned a little bit every time. They're not just the V8 the, hull is the one that's out now, right? No, that's the X8. The, the V8s X8. are the ones okay. that were the original wing boats that had the scalloped gunnels. Okay. And um, those are three different sizes there, so um, it wasn't like we just didn't make another boat until we made the X8 after we made the, the V8s, but um, the small, medium, and large of those are distinctly different shaped hulls, and those required a fair amount of work each. Uh, then we made some new fours. Uh, our fours are pretty popular. Um, and then we uh, we'd learned a lot from as we go. These are all just, you know, it's hard to bench test these designs, and you have to get them rowed, and there's no software that exists that 
with finality really tells you if a certain shape is better than the others. So yeah. it takes a lot of intuition. And so what we use is we have a few programs that we run. Um, we model hull shapes through. And, um, and, and it, it, like I said, it requires a fair amount of intuition. And I think our intuition is getting a lot better. You know, and I think we're, I think we're pretty much spot on. Is now. that, when you say intuition, is that primarily you and your dad? Or are there a lot of people here that... It's primarily my dad. I mean, I've got some to do with it. But um, my dad's a smart guy. Yeah, oh, I definitely. I mean, yeah. you pick that up right away the moment you meet yeah, him. Yeah, he's self-taught, and he's um, he just didn't like stuff he was reading. He didn't think it was telling the whole story, so he'd read more and then just think a lot more, you know, and get to where he wanted to be. I mean, it's um, all this stuff that you see has got my dad's fingerprints all over it. Well, boats are. I mean, they're they're an intimate piece of equipment, and if you do watch, I mean, if people have watched Symphony of Rowing, Symphony um, of Motion, Symphony of Motion. Thank you. Um, your dad was around some pretty incredible people in that period of time, yep. right? So now he, so he does understand the equipment better, and I know that he still coaches, right? So he still goes out. Yep. He still goes out twice on a, a week on a weekly basis yep. to be. He with. really likes that. Uh, my grandfather was a sailor. We've always been boaters, and so I think we have a good eye for what is appealing. Yeah. And um, the lines of a boat are as important as the functionality, and and the hard part is making a very specific. Uh, a boat for very specific needs like a rowing shell actually be pretty. And there's, hey, let's, you know, there's a lot of ugly boats out there, rowing shells, you know. And, um, but, uh, you know, when you look at transitions and lines, um, I think my dad's done a really nice job of melding all that. I mean, I think they're pretty boats. And I, 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 I like looking at our boats. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I'm biased, right? Because I'm, I'm working on resolutes, but. I've always found the Pococks are very pretty boats. They're yeah. gorgeous. I've rowed it in, I've rowed in all of your hulls. Uh, I've always enjoyed rowing them. What do you like? So, what do you like better, going to regattas or going to practices? Uh, uh, let's see here. Um, I'd say races, man. I mean, I want to see, I want to see the boats go fast. I appreciate the effort that goes into making them go fast. And um, uh, you know, the NCAA is. The NCAA is the most competitive regatta in the world. It really is. It's cutthroat. Yeah. And so to see um, uh, how close those races are, how close the races are when people get knocked out of a final. Um, and the IRA is the same way. The, the semis, the reps in the semis at the IRA are bonkers, you know. And so, um, uh, you know, it's practice. It's like Alan Iverson. <laughs> practice. You talking about practice? <laughs> Uh, not races. Races yeah. all day. I want to see them fast. Well, look, I, I, we're, I, can, I look at the car world a lot can compared to rowing boats. And I see, I use Mike Vespoli because I think that he revolutionized the rowing market in the 90s. I mean, he is a major part, Vespoli, the company, is a major part of why we have an economy of scale in the U.S., he no has question. he had no question right. I mean, no he, but he had what four different boat designs over a twenty-five year period. So every every several <laughs> five six years, he went out with something new. And and here's Pocock. You guys are doing similar thing, right? It was a twenty-year gap, but you're changing your boat. Uh, Hudson, I think two or three changes. Yeah. Do you I mean, think that that's important? Um, like the car world, where you see like a new Hyundai Sonata just came out, and it's it's completely different what what it was there before engine mm -hmm. might be the same but i mean do you think that that's essential in boat building well, here? i mean 
Essential, no. Um, I think people want something new, you know, so we refresh it. We do that, as do all the other builders. Um, the, you know, the, the, the intriguing thing, though, for me is you know, sometimes I'm not so sure people are actually making improvements when they make new models. I mean, uh, that Vespoli D-hull, and then therefore the Millennium, that was the best boat Vespoli ever built. Back it in really the early was. 90s. It was, that was the best boat that was built by, that was designed by really smart guys. And, um, and also, you know, these sailboat guys come in and think that they can design rowing shells. Uh, sailboats, you know, move in the water drastically differently than rowing shells do. And they think because they've designed an America's Cup boat, uh, they actually know what they're talking about. And, um, I mean, rowing shells, we hopefully try to reduce this, but they at least stop every stroke. And in some ways, they go backwards. And that wreaks havoc on your waterline. And, and all the fluid dynamics that go into making rowing shells go. Um, if the boat loses the boundary, I don't want to get too physics oriented, but if, if, the, if the boat loses its boundary layer every stroke has to pick it back up again, that's a lot of drag, and that doesn't act like any other boat out there. So to assume these experts know better than people that actually know about rowing boats is um, uh, short-sighted. Well, I mean, you know, having rowed as much as I have, <clears throat> like, it's also, it's subjective in a way. I mean, you can't, you can't, you, you, you cannot say every boat in the world one is the best. You just can't. It's not possible. If a boat, if a boat was truly that much faster, it would be blatantly obvious across the board at every level. It would be blatantly obvious. These boats are all fast and they're all slow. It depends on the crew. And you know, I, I've, I've said that before. I'll, I'll keep saying it. Um, uh, the rowing shell, the eight man crew, eight woman crew, is it's the most inconsistent motor there is in the world. Mm-hmm. And people have bad days. People had a bad lunch, whatever it is. It's the most inconsistent motor there is. And so um, to try and chase a second, two seconds with, uh, with that input is, um, uh, is, I think you have better things to spend your time on, you know. Um, the other thing is people who decide then to test boats and, and to validate speed or validate no speed by doing... By doing, uh, hey, we're going to test the speed of these two different brands of boats, and we're going to go do uh, six 500-meter pieces, okay? Uh, that means, and, and you're doing it on a course most likely where you're looking across at some markers on the side of the river or using some buoys, okay? Pretty accurate, but mm-hmm. not by any means, uh, you know, links, whatever it is, no, on a track, no, no, no. okay? Um, you're trying to find a second. A second would be huge, okay? If, if a boat was a second faster, that would be really huge. And so by doing 500s, you're trying to find a quarter of a second, mm-hmm. okay? Um, if a boat was a second faster over 2,000 meters and you're testing it over 500 meters, uh, you've really, yeah, I, I think your thumb isn't that fast. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really good point. I, but, you know, going, going back to the original sort of like, not the original, but this question I had was, how important do you think it is in, in, to changing and evolving? You're saying that it's not really that important, but... Um, you don't think that from a grand scheme of things, most manufacturers are actually making big changes to their boat designs. Well, um, changes to boat designs themselves to hulls is a, is a, it's expensive. Uh, the tooling these days required to make a new eight man boat, eight woman boat. Um, these are expensive endeavors. And, um, so what most builders tend to do is, is wait until they know they've got a better design, hopefully better design. And they, they, um, they, they make it. Well, I'm learning. I'm learning through my experiences that, I mean, 
how, how do you learn? I question is like, how do you learn how you solve that problem? Like, how do you know that you found a faster hull? You have to build the mold. You have to build well, the boat anyway. I mean, it's either way, you're putting money in and time. Yep. And you can model them, but you can have to interpret the modeling somehow if you're using a computer model. Um, it helps to have fast crews use them. It helps to have fast crews beat other fast crews. But that's all dependent upon the day as well. I mean, it's just, you know, again, the, the racing in NCAAs is so fierce that uh, the difference there is not the boat. You know, and, and listen, we've had a lot of success in NCAAs. And so to my detriment, I'm saying, you know, um, uh, in many ways, uh, absolutely, it's still the horses, not the chariot, that old axiom. I mean, well, it's absolutely uh, true. Yeah, so for the early 2000s, Resolutes dominated the NCAA, right? And speed hasn't changed that much. There was a time in the, in the mid-2000s, the whole grand final and the whole petite final, I think, uh, at, at least one, if not two, res, uh, two NCAAs were all Resolute boats. I remember that vividly. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> so does every other building. <laughs> that was a, those are, and those so does Resolute. Years. I'll point that out. So does Resolute. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are some big years for, for the company. There's no yep. question. Um, so, okay, so, you know, go, going, going with, with the Pocock theme and, and even boat, the boat manufacturing theme, um, how, how, with the way the trends are with the market, do you think that we are in need of, of changes every four to eight years? Or do you think that it could be longer of a trend? Well, um, I, you know, I, I haven't looked at these boats too closely. Um, I don't think the Empock has changed a whole lot. You know, I don't think they've come out with a drastically new design like uh, like the, the big three in North America have. OK, mm-hmm. um, and I, when I mean that, I don't mean to I'm not saying big like Resolute's not involved in that. But, you know, Hudson's got a brand new boat or a newish boat. That's always got a newish boat and we have a newish boat. Yeah, um, I don't think Empockers put nearly that much energy and effort into a new design that we have. Flippy's done some major changes. Yeah, and they have a lot of really good hull designs, especially on the first singles and doubles. That's yeah. for sure. Um, you know, the four um, are the, the our Pocock, the Pocock K4. I mean, that boat. I'm t- we've got we've made new molds of of the same model, but that mold hasn't changed. Um, let's see the uh, the small sized K4, which has won a ton of NCAA's um, and IRAs. Not the small one. The small one hasn't won any IRAs. Actually, it's not true. It's won lightweight IRAs. But the um, that small K4 was built out of a quad that was designed for the 1996 Olympics. Um, and we just stretched the cockpit and added a coxswain. It was mm. a straight quad that was used in 96 in Atlanta. And so, you know, here it is 2020. Um, that K4 shape is, and that boat wasn't just built right before the Olympics. That was built um, uh, 93, 94-ish. And so mm. there's a design that has stood the test of time. You know? Sure. Now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make some changes to that model coming up here soon. We're going uh, to do an interior like the X8. Similar oh, the same pattern and the same. What about the same um, <clears throat> gunnel walls? The not the, the non notched gunnel walls. <clears throat> yeah, um, our newer boats are, have gotten away from that castellated gunnel. Um, these are all straight, and the fours most likely will be as well. But it's not like that the gunnels are cut down. We just build them back up again in between the wings. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So both are doing the same thing, right? So we both go out, we spend time with coaches, we try to sell our product or service. 
Um, but more recently, I've been spending a lot of time with um, notable coaches. And I, my experience that I had, and, I, and I've talked about it multiple times with Steve Gladstone was unbelievable, right? And he's got a lot of respect for your dad because I know they have a big connection at the Cal level or where, wherever he was on the West Coast. I think they were connected at the Actually, West Coast. Actually, he was, no, he was, Steve Gladstone was my, um, Steve Gladstone was the freshman coach at Princeton when my dad was a freshman. Okay, so my, then my dad was, there was a coaching connection. My dad, my dad was in the Princeton boat that was Steve Gladstone's first crew at Princeton, which was actually a story that was just discussed, I believe, um, in a recent other podcast. I want to, Maybe it was Kitches. Did Kitch just do a, a, a podcast with Gladstone? Uh, oh, Gladstone yeah, he did. tells he the did. whole story yeah. about about how what are we going to do? We're going to do jumpies, and we're going to do we're, we're not going to eat as much or something oh, like that yeah. to get faster yeah. before the IRA. I heard that exact. That story. was my dad's crew. <laughs> yeah. That was my dad's crew. So I guess so. So notably, I'm just thinking like you know some people that I really learned from. So like I, I get in a launch and, and I'm watching him and watching his crew, and it's the best rowing I've ever seen in my life. It is right? the best rowing you will ever see. Those guys were flawless. You and will it was not. Funny. You, you, Alex. You will not see a better rowing crew than that boat, than that team. The third and the fourth V, I thought was his one and two V, and he brushed it off and laughed and said, "No, no, no, these are these are the, these are the top guys." And they those third and fourth V were better than anything I have ever seen yeah. up close and personal. And then we get to the one V and two V, and I talked about this in an earlier podcast about <laughs> culture and what what he provides, and like some other guys. I mean, I've I've been in the launch. With a lot of DC guys, and I've had a lot of fun, you know. But Steve Gladstone was something that I found myself enjoying more of the rowing experience than I did anything else. Like I stopped trying to sell a service or a product. You've been doing this a long time. Like, are there any notable coaches or people that you have sat in a launch with and said, "Holy shit, this oh, is yeah. just awesome"? Uh, absolutely. Um, off the top of my head, um, I mean, talk about okay, uh, the holy shit moment, uh, Dan Rook. Yeah, uh, who's currently lightweight coach at Dartmouth? Um, this was this was back when he was the heavyweight coach at Cornell, heavyweight guys coach at Cornell. But then, um, and then at Dartmouth too. But um, uh, Rook's good. He's really good. If anybody gets a chance to ride and launch with him, they should take it. Um, was it just his coaching style and what he was seeing, or like what, what was like... his eye, his eye, and what he talks to the guys about what's yeah. important? Um, I mean, Gladstone clearly talks to the guys. About the rowing, which I think in a lot of ways has we've gotten away from that because everybody's so centric on the erg and pulling. Um, the rigging is um, has become um, erg centric. You know, we're starting to rig the rowing shells like they're an erg. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, when when you get out with a guy like Steve or watch his crew row, you you quickly understand that he spends a lot of time talking about the stroke, and um, and I, I think it's. It's too bad because that's the way I was. I grew up, you know, and um, I value that. But it's listen. I understand the sports. The sports changing. I mean, it's the way it is. But um, other people I've had launch rides with that I thought um, really just uh, the level of which they spoke to their crew and what they brought to the table. Uh, Dave O'Neill at Texas, absolutely, um, um, and uh, and Al at Cal, um, totally different styles but equally effective. Um, uh, Craig Amerikanian at uh, no longer at Stanford. Um, hopefully he resurfaces somewhere. But you want to have some fun in a launch, go on a launch ride with him. Yeah. Uh, same with Chris Clark, who was classmates with Craig at. Uh, they were both students at Cal. Chris Clark at Wisconsin. Um, I've had a couple of um, 
And I've had some a couple recent rides that I can think of. Uh, I remember it because it was cold, and then um, it was really cold, and then I got to go to uh, uh, my first basketball game at Duke. But oh, I got wow. to go on a ride, a, a launch ride with uh, Megan at Duke, and um, I think she knows her stuff. Yeah, Duke's a pretty good, pretty quick team it's for a, sure. It's it's just a cool school too. That um, that we went to a basketball game and it was I think the game we went to was like was last spring and it was senior night or something. Um, but it was uh, oh man, I mean if you get a chance to go watch a basketball game there. How you doing, coaches? Right. You do that every every year. Coach Con's a yeah, thing we put on every um, after the racing season in June, which is a lot of fun. And yeah, you can you can give a, a little plug to that. I mean, I, I I know there's value to it for, for for coaches, but it's a it's a three day training immersion of, of, of yeah. We um this this was thought up uh, by myself uh, on a on a drive home from work one day myself and uh, an ex employee, a, a favorite employee named Amy Winner, who many people. Uh, know who've been around long enough um and amy was a was a new jersey philadelphia uh girl knew a lot about rowing and came out here uh, to work with us and she and i were driving home one day and we said hey we gotta have a conference that basically is for assistant coaches only and the tagline at the time was all the stuff all the stuff that your boss thinks you're supposed to know or thinks you should know that you don't know you know, oh, that you were too sure. embarrassed to ask or to admit that you didn't know how to use a pitch meter, measure spread, measure pitch, uh, why you want oars this length, why you want to put your stretchers here, what does through the pin mean, you know, those kind of things. And then a lot of physics talk. I mean, we talk, we get deep. Uh, my dad gets deep on the physics of rowing, which I think um, could benefit a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's 10, I think we've had as little as 10, as many as 14 or 15 people come. And At one time. Up. Yep, we put them up uh, down the street, and we have <clears throat> we have a repair session where we literally uh, take a take a boat, an older boat, and beat holes in it, and then everybody fixes their holes. How do you determine who's <laughs> accepted to come? Just like applying for school, they got to uh, they need to get a coach's recommendation. They have to apply. They have to write a, a small essay. They have to get a coach's recommendation, um, and then we try to balance. We get a lot of applications. I mean, for these let's call it twelve spots, we get. Uh, I think we got 65, 70. I think most we got 91 year. I think of oh, wow. applications, and um, it's only collegiate assistant coaches is what it is. Like, what's your favorite aspect of what you do day to day? I love interacting with our guys, uh, guys that work at the shop here. Um, I like. I really like that. I like leaving every day and looking over your shoulder as you turn the lights off and seeing what you made today. I think there's an aspect of that that uh, is waning in this country. I don't think there's a lot of that anymore. Um, the appreciation for hard work and what work can actually deliver. You know, you can actually make something. And so I, I get a lot of value out of that. I, I love coming to the shop every day. Well, there it is. There's the uh, the interview with John Titus at Pocock Racing Shells. I hope you guys enjoyed um, this episode. More to come with us. Um, be spending some time with some coaches uh, and talking more about training, nutrition, and the future of rowing. Thanks for listening. This is the Rower's Choice Podcast. Rower's Choice is made up of finish line shell repair, Resolute Racing Shells, and Sykes USA.